Thank you, everybody. Thank you for taking time out of your afternoon, and thank you for joining us for a special live taping of what will be Season 4, Episode 1 of Spotlight On, when it's released on January 12th, 2021. Today, the spotlight is on Michael F. Shine. Mike is the founder and president of Microfame Media, a marketing agency that specializes in making idea-based companies famous in their fields. Some of Mike's clients have included eBay, Magento, LinkedIn, and several prominent universities. Mike's writing has appeared in Fortune, Forbes, Inc., Psychology Today, and Huffington Post, and he's a speaker for international audiences spanning from the northeastern United States to the southeastern coast of China. Mike has a new book out on January 12th, which is why he's here with us today. That book is The Hype Handbook. 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers, and it's published by McGraw-Hill. To set the table for our talk, I'd like to read a short passage from the book. Quote, Imagine a world where the best ideas, the greatest products, the most interesting art, and the most meaningful causes don't get swallowed up and forgotten. Imagine a world where the best people understand the best methods for getting attention and building the biggest, most energetic audiences. This is what hype can give us. Michael Shine, welcome. It is great to be here, LP. It's great to see you again. Yeah, that's right. That's right. This is our second go around. Um, thank you for making time to do it again. <laughs> At least this time I'll be... It's a uh, pleasure. I had so much fun the first time, you know? <laughs> you decided to do it again. Um, yeah. Well, and this time I have the benefit of having read the book. So um, thank you for sending me a copy. Um, of course. I just finished it um, about 24 hours ago. And um, I, I really, I truly enjoyed it. I feel like... Um, from almost the first page, it sent my mind reeling in terms of practical things that I could learn and understand um, and apply. Um, but we'll dig into that um, in a few minutes. Uh, first, to, to help the, uh, the audience um, level set a little bit, um, can you tell me uh, basically where are you from? I live in Beacon, New York, which is a town that is about an hour, an hour, 15 minutes outside of New York City. I've bounced between three metropolitan areas. I, I, um, you know, uh, I'm from Philadelphia, lived in Miami for a long time, lived in New York, bounced back to Miami, back to Philadelphia. I, I joke with people, it's, it's the Jewish triangle. You know what I mean? I used to think that like Jewish people were 60% of the population. I didn't realize that most people didn't know Jewish people. They're all in those three <laughs> cities. So, yeah. <laughs> and so you grew up in Philadelphia? Well, really in between. I, I moved from Philadelphia when I was nine to Miami, but I would every summer go to South Jersey, which is basically Philadelphia. And um, then I went to college in Philadelphia, went to New York for five years, went back to Miami for a job, and then came back to New York. So I really have split my time between those three cities just by sort of happenstance and connections that I had. And 
what was the uh what was the philadelphia of your first nine years what was your awareness of philly like what was your experience of philly were you a city kid were you in more one of the more like sort of suburban neighborhoods yeah i was in the suburbs um but i was i I liked it i i i it was a happy time for me i mean my family um was all there and we had a close family so it's funny i lived in in the suburbs but my grandparents lived in a row house in Northeast Philly, which was very much the city. And I would stay there all the time. And it was the smallest house. You know, I don't know if you know what Philly row houses are like, but mm-hmm. it's, it's like you flip like a, a tall building on its side. It's just like this rectangle that with, you know, walls dividing the places. And it had one bathroom and they used to have four kids, but it was like a magical place to me. Their basement was full, full of all kinds of cool stuff. And I just felt very loved there and like sitting on the stoop. So I had both experiences, I guess. And what brought you all to Miami? Yeah, my, um, my father got kind of a bug uh, to, to, to go down there. And so we went, you know, he, um, he made a job change, but it was really prompted by his desire to want to go to Miami. And we, uh, I had no choice in the matter, but I guess we all followed. There wasn't a family vote. <laughs> uh, there were no family votes in, in my family. Uh, that was, you know, uh, dad kind of called the shots in that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what kind of kid were you? Like, I, I see like, what, what's that over your right shoulder there on the wall? Is that a comic book collection or poster art? They are, they are comic books. They're those old EC comics, like the weird science tales from the crypt kind of comics. I, I did like comics as a kid. I still have a place in my heart for them. I'm not one of these guys though, who, uh, who the bulk of their reading material is comics at 43. I am not that guy, but um, yeah, I, you know, it's funny even though I like sports, I, um, I think I may have had a learning disability. So I, it's, I was, I read and spoke very early. So people, um, thought I was smart. I, I guess I'm smart, but I think that also clouded the fact that I processed the world through language. I've never been diagnosed with this, but there's a type of learning disability called a nonverbal learning disability, which counterintuitively means that you struggle with spatial reasoning and kind of use words to process the world. And I've like looked it up just sort of uh, on my own. And um, I have all of the, the the hallmarks, you know, I'm not very good at puzzles. I get lost very easily. And I wasn't very good at sports, even though I wanted to be, um, which made me very sad as a little boy. But I think it made me um, imaginative. I mean, I read a lot. I um, drew, even though I'm not particularly great at drawing but I did um always making stuff up I think I was kind of funny um and and that sort of thing yeah yeah and um did you go to high school in Miami yeah and what 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 was your uh you know what were you in high school were you a music guy were you a car fanatic like pigeonhole yourself for me I was sort of a mixture of a goody two shoes and a mischief maker. And I, I guess what I mean by that is I didn't really get into real trouble. So I was, first of all, I was a student. Um, I, I got good grades and I cared a lot about that. I don't know why that was just important to me. Um, I, I didn't really get into real trouble, not big into drugs, didn't steal cars, you know, none of that. However, um, I made trouble in other ways. You know, I would, I would, 
debate with teachers. Uh, I, I played in a band called the Psychotic Koalas, and we encouraged people to throw. We brought up like a big thing of Slim Jims, and we told friends of ours to throw the Slim Jims at people, and one hit a teacher in the face. You know, um, so things like that. I, I would I, I would cause mischief. You know, so I was this weird hybrid of the two things. It was it was I've. I've done a lot of thinking about this. I, I don't know what that's about. It's it's strange. Yeah. Well, mischief is a word that comes up a lot throughout um, your book. And I want to come back to that in a minute. Um, but I wonder if um, you could start by giving everyone a definition or the definition that you use for the word hype. Yeah. So I've really, with this book and just in general, tried to reclaim the word hype, the way that in the past people have reclaimed punk. I mean, that was prison lingo or, you know, queer in the LGBT community, which I don't mean to compare what I'm trying to accomplish with the struggles that community has gone through. But, you know, hype is usually looked at as a negative word. It means drumming up a lot of attention around something that isn't valuable. But I see it very differently. I see it as any activity that drives a lot of emotion among a large group of people to get them to take a certain action. And there's no moral component to this. It can be a good action or a bad action. And I was really inspired by hip hop because that's the one community where hype is not considered a negative. It's, it's very much um, just a fact of, of, of the streets or of, of doing what you need to do. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, um, do you have a theory or a thesis as to why that's unique in hip hop? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. You know, um, so I've researched, as it says in the subtitle, a lot of unconventional promoters, right? So uh, cult leaders, you know, propaganda artists, but also a lot of music managers from the early days before it was big business, a lot of pranksters. And I think the one thing that what I call hype artists have in common is that they they are on the margins with some exceptions. But but by and large, what defines them or what they have in common is that they don't have a direct path to get what they want. They don't have a direct path to power. So they need to be creative in the truest sense. Right. And I think, you know, if you think about hip hop, it was born in the South Bronx, which is the poorest, still the poorest neighborhood in the United States of America. And now the, there's a rapper who's a billionaire, you know, Jay-Z. And, and the thing that's been interesting about hip hop is there was actually in many of the early hip hop groups. And even today, there's a character called the hype man who not only is in charge of getting the crowd excited and sometimes even running street teams, but who actually raps, you know what I mean? And there's never been this divide in rap between hustle and business and art. It's always been, you do what you got to do to get paid. And I, I think that's telling. I think when, you know, uh, you know, in this country, unfortunately, this is changing, but African-Americans who pioneered hip hop are still disadvantaged on balance as compared to white people. And so when it, it's very easy for a white upper middle class person who plays in a rock band to be a rebel and have rips in their jeans and talk about throwing caution to the wind. But in communities where you're challenged to get ahead and where every mistake can set you down a path that you can't recover from, you have to use every tool in your arsenal. And I think hype is, is one of those. 
And when you, what was your first encounter or your first realization, um, your light bulb moment about hype as something that can be harnessed for good or for at least a non-destructive purpose? I, I had a couple. So this story can get kind of long. So slow me down if, you know, if, <laughs> if, if we need to move on. But I, um, the mischief maker side of me won out for a while after I graduated college. And I decided to my parents' consternation to try to make, uh, make it in a band. And I remember my dad said to me, but can you sing? And I was like, no. And he was like, well, what are you, you know, what are you doing? So, but I had this thing, I was going to change rock and roll. I was just kind of sure of that. Cause it was like the time of Limp Bizkit and Creed and, and all this. It was like 1999. So I was just confident that this could happen. The Clash couldn't sing well, right? So I got together with some guys who played better than me. And um, yeah, we didn't make it, quote unquote, cause that's a very hard thing to do. However, with the wisdom of a 43 year old man and the realization of how little talent I had, it's amazing how well we did do. I mean, we used to sell out Arlene's grocery pretty regularly, which is a pretty well-known club. I mean, it's where the strokes started out. Um, we were on the cover of New York press, which was a big alternative paper at the time. I mean, we, 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 we had some success. We had a big following and the way that, I made that happen was by what I now call hype. I mean, so for example, I got us on Showtime at the Apollo knowing full well that they got put us on there to be booed off, right? But that got us a lot of attention. Um, we had a song called Ash Wednesday and I used to dress as a nun. And sometimes I would walk around the Lower East Side and like go on stage from the street, you know? So I would do all this and, and it worked. And so then, you know, when, when that kind of folded, I had no way to make a living. I got a job and, you know, I'm a hard worker and I'm not a dummy. And I started to do well there after a while. And after the first three years, I was really miserable, but I started to do well. I started to get paid more and I started to become kind of a corporate guy. And after eight years, I was real miserable, but I was making decent money, good money for me. Uh, and I was a vice president and the whole thing. And I left. Uh, and I decided I was going to be a freelance copywriter. And I figured because I was a good writer and I knew about business, my talent would just win out and I would I would just get all these clients. Look out, like, world, here comes Mike. <laughs> yeah, right. And I had like a year's worth of savings. It's funny. My business model was I was going to write telecom white papers because I knew that field. And I was going to write one a week for $5,000 a week. And I was going to make more than my corporate job. So how's that for a business plan? I mean, if you want to buy this, you're buying from a real business wizard, you know, this, this business book. So that was, that was the plan. Uh, it did not work. Um, I almost lost all of my savings. I was terrified. I had an infant, you know, it was, it was bad. And I read every sales and marketing book. It did nothing for me. And at wit's end, I was like, you know, this is weird because I'm so bad at sales and marketing right now. I, I wanted, I'm horrible, but I was really good at drumming up attention for the band. Like, wasn't that marketing, but we never thought of it as marketing, you know? So I said to myself, what if I tried to like do some of that kind of stuff, but in this new environment? So there's this guy named Gary Vaynerchuk, which uh, do you know who he is? I mean, not every group knows who feel he free is. to feel free to give, you know, 15 or 30 seconds uh, on who he is. So Gary Vaynerchuk is this guy who certainly in my field of like marketing and, and content marketing in particular is like a, a big celebrity. 
Yeah, Gary V. He he um started out with this company called Wine Library TV, which was pretty cool. But he, he's basically an internet guru, and his whole thing is that he goes around screaming at young people to hustle, hustle, hustle. And you, he used to say, you know, I, I get up and tweet from the toilet, and you know this and that, and that's how what you have to do at three in the morning, and blah blah blah. And I would hear this guy, and I thought, while I thought he was a great business person, I thought his advice was ridiculous. You know, I thought it helped him, but not these kids. So I had talked my way into a column at Inc. Magazine. Um, and so I wrote an article, which I was actually scared to write, called Why Gary Vaynerchuk is Flat Out Wrong. And I posted it and I was terrified. So that night, and I, I cannot stress to you how much of a nobody I was at this time. He recorded a rebuttal video calling me out by name. And he started out nice. And by the end, he was like sweating and talking about he could retire tomorrow and this and that. And then all his fans started blowing up my Twitter feed. You're lazy. You're an idiot. And I was like working 80 hours a week and making no money. So I didn't feel lazy, but you know, (laughs) you know, but, but anyway, um, the funny thing is I started to get all these like followers and then they became fans. And what I realized was it was like this idea of being a contrarian that I always used to do with the band. It was this idea of like, I, I picked a fight And there were all these people who felt the same way. And now I was like their tribe leader. And I guess that was the first thing I started thinking like, well, maybe I could figure out, are are there strategies out there that while I'd like to apply them ethically, because I didn't leave my corporate job to become a con artist, are there ways to drum up attention that aren't just the typical Google plus Instagram funnels, whatever the marketing thing of, of, of the day was. And that's where the interest started actually. And just to, just to bounce around a little bit, when did you recognize that that's also what was happening in hip hop? Like I'm trying to stage sort of the evolution of your thinking yeah. or your realization here. When, when did that connection happen for you? I, I think that was one of those kind of like terms of art or not terms of art, but like, I came up with the term. So my original idea was I was trying to think of ways to spread my message. And I was going to make a podcast called Hype Men because I just like the word Hype Men from rap because I like Public Enemy. And um, and Flava Flav, you know, is like the ultimate Hype Men. I was like going to profile different Hype Men. And then that never came to pass, but the idea stuck in my head. But I didn't, I didn't make this kind of the, the, the more intellectual connection until I started to research and, and write and refine my thinking. Mm-hmm. All right. Then to get back to the topic of mischief, what is benevolent mischief and what is its relationship to hype? So the way... I'm going to answer this question in a roundabout way. So let's forget about business for a second and talk about music and art, since we all like that. The kind of music and art that has always appealed to me was music and art that had an element where where the, the marketing and the art were integrated in a way that actually added color to the thing itself. So, so for example, David Bowie, who I love, you know, who I'm a huge, huge fan of is David Bowie great because of his songs. Sure. You know, they're, they're, they're great songs. Is it his costumes? Sure. But it's also the fact that he 
would show up before he was even famous in a limousine because he was playing the role of the greatest star in the world. And the press would cover that. And yeah, it helped his career, but it also made a statement about artificiality that was very intellectual. He fired his band on stage when he was playing the role of Ziggy Stardust, which was the best PR move ever. But it was also part of the story of Ziggy Stardust. Or Warhol, Did, what, was it the fact that he painted a soup can? Was it like the way we look at the Mona Lisa? No, of course not. It's a soup can. But it's, it's, it, the, you can't separate the newsworthiness of that and the fact that it got the abstract expressionists who are older than him so angry that they would like go crazy in public, you know? So I think it's that. I think it's creating like energy and antics and making trouble in a way that doesn't hurt people in a way that actually enriches and adds color to their life. And I think this is where I think people get it so wrong. I, I often hear these people, you know, writers and, and artists, but even like consultants who we deal with a lot, who, who are creating ideas and selling them for money. And the really good ones will often say things like, it's almost the equivalent of, I shouldn't have to promote this. Like it's a necessary evil and it's a drag. And I'm thinking to myself, like, you could actually, if you reframed your thinking, add to your work by promoting this thing. It doesn't have to be like, okay, I, I created it. Now I have to promote it. And I, I, that's just, that's been my idea. It's like, we always look at little kids and we're like the kid with the twinkle in their eye. They're so mischievous. You don't think of that. It's not like they're so bad. They're mischievous. So yeah. Dennis the Menace. <laughs> <laughs> and is there... I mean, there's a lot sort of in that notion, though, like part of it to, to hear you articulate it, part of it is like, you know, finding the enjoyment in what you're doing is one aspect of sure. it or bringing joy to what you're doing. Um, you know, there's just that 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 mindset, that mind shift, mindset shift of just not thinking about things as obligations, more as opportunities. I don't know. There's just a lot of like psychological sort of yeah. self trickery in there, I guess, or motivation in there. Um, but I also see it sort of on the spectrum of, you know, there's an element of performance art. Sure. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. And um, so how do you, how do you, um, how do you draw that out for your clients or how do you get your clients to embrace that? How do they find that? part of it that works for them. So, you know, like, like any company, we have a process, but we're also flexible with, with, with the way we, um, you know, deal with individual clients. However, what's, what's so interesting about this and what I found, what, what really confirmed my thinking when I wrote the book is that it almost doesn't matter what the subject matter is. It can be, you know, a cult, it can be a management consultant, it can be a new technology, it can be a civil rights movement. If you strip the content out of it, the same principles get people excited in mm. this kind of mass way that we're talking about. So the first thing I do with any new client is I ask them a question and I don't let up till they give me a real non-BS answer. I say to them, listen, what's a point of view in your corner of the universe? It could be your industry, your field, your niche on the internet, whatever, that is really widely held that people almost think of as gospel and that you absolutely hate that every time you hear it, you just think it is, is just a, a, a waste, you know, that just leading people down the wrong path. 
And they'll often give a very like blase answer in the beginning. And I push them. And then when I start to see them actually get worked up, sometimes they stand up in their seat. That's when I know we're at the beginning of having a contrarian point of view, because if you don't have that strong point of view, nothing else matters. If, if you have this very like boring, we have an excellent, uh, you know, you see this with music, you know, I'm not going to give a business example. You can talk about people who have their, you know, business to business technology and they talk about the functions, but even music, sometimes you'll see this singer who's perfectly good. They've got great songs and they strum a guitar and, you know, this and that. And often those people fail because there's no, it's almost an artistic point of view. You know what I mean? And, and, and I think it's, it's, it, it can be really similar um, with business people. And then we run that through absolutely everything. Everything we do, we, 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 um, we make them come back to that point of view. And then after that, we start running experiments, which we can talk about as well. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. do want to, I want to talk about that, but um, what's your contrarian point of view? Well, I've had two over the course of, of my business. Um, the, 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 contrarian point of view right now is the one we're talking about. Um, and it's gotten me a lot of attention and I truly believe it. That's something I should say too. It shouldn't be one that you make up just to raise a ruckus. It should be one that you can stand behind, but it's that if you want to promote yourself, stop reading sales and marketing books and start looking at, um, the, the mischief makers and some of the bad guys in history, because it's your obligation to use those tactics for evil. They're going to continue. I mean, for good, they're going to continue. <laughs> yeah, of course they're going to continue <laughs> to be around no matter what you do. And the bad guys are going to continue to understand them. <clears throat> so if you, if we want more good ideas to be out there in the world, the it's, it's my obligation to teach as many people as possible, how to, um, how to hype things up and people will fight with me. I mean, I, I did a talk the other day though. I, I feel like it was a relatively hostile audience. Um, I felt kind of bad afterwards and people, and people were offended. I mean, they were saying, you're telling me to hype things up. We've had enough hype for the last four years, you know, th this kind of stuff. And okay. But that's okay. Because if everyone likes it, then it's very middle of the road. My earlier point of view, which is what caused me to pick the fight with Gary Vaynerchuk, is that even when it comes to, I mean, this is a little more um, industry inside baseball, but even when it comes to content and content marketing, which is what I did, you need systems and structures, just working around the clock to, to write things from scratch and produce things from scratch doesn't make sense. And why that was good for me in my niche is that um, that's how I worked. So that, that brings up a good point. It doesn't have to be controversial. It doesn't have to be satanic. It doesn't have to be bombastic. It can be contrarian in your corner of the universe. I mean, there's, I can give you examples of project management software who have used this tactic well. Yeah. T tell that story. I, that's, I, I, I wanted to be careful about pulling too much uh, from the book and, and spoiler alerts, but um, since you bring it up, t tell that story. Was it Basecamp? Yeah. Basecamp. Yeah. So what was the, what was the example there? So Basecamp is a now very widely used and very successful project management software tool that really did this very well. So when they came into the market, you know, the, the, the status quo unquestioned assumption about project management software is that it needs to have as many functions in po as possible and you need more functionality. So, and, and, and it should be customizable. So 
you invest all this money in a software to help your team manage projects and do all the things they need to do to coordinate. And not only should it be able to do a million things, but when the provide when you ask the provider to add more functions, they run and jump and add more. And that's what makes a good project management software. So Basecamp said, you know what? This is silly. We don't agree with this. This only works if in, in an environment where you're constantly working and you're constantly, you know, pushing around the clock. But we're going to create a project management software that's conspicuously stripped down. So theirs was very easy to use, but also only had a few functions. And if you were their client, you asked them to add more, they would just say no. Now, what what made this work so well for them, besides the fact that it's a very good product, is that they didn't just go out there and talk about project management software. They became the apostles for simplicity in every form. So the guys who started the company, um, David uh, Freed and uh, David Hansen Heinemeyer, I always pronounce the names wrong. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> but um, they wrote a book called Rework, which essentially said, you know, you that, like one of the things they said was fire your workaholics. It's not only important to give yourself balance, it's actually hurting you to work hugely long hours because you then overcomplicate things and you need to find more elegant solutions. They they just caught constantly taught, they, they did a four day work week and they promoted this stuff like crazy. Now, why would they do that? Because that was their contrarian point of view. They were basically saying this religion of overwork and complexity and this and that is wrong and it's harmful. So what did everybody buy when they bought into this to help them? They bought Basecamp. So that's that that is a one that's exactly how it can be used in a very kind of niche business to business, non glitzy, glammy sort of you know environment. Yeah. And in your, in your business at, at Microfame, uh, you have this concept of the idea-based company. Is that an idea-based company? Because if you asked me, what is Basecamp? I'd say it's a software company, but it sounds like you're saying it's something more. It, it's really a great question. And it's funny that you say that because when we started the company, I used to say consultants, not idea-based companies, because you know, like, like most businesses, especially agencies, when uh, I started the business, I would try to sell to anyone who would bring me in. And I remember having this meeting with like this product company, like a commodity type thing. I forget what they, some kind of realist. It wasn't even, it was like a financial product, a real estate financial product, actually. And I went through this whole pitch and this whole thing. And the guy was sitting back in his chair and the whole team was there. And he said to me, you know, I think your service is really great. He's like, but I've been sending out direct mail for years and it's been working. Why should I use your thing? And I had no answer. You know, I knew it could enhance what he was doing, but if he was convinced that this thing worked, like, why should I sell it to him? So what I realized was consultants, people literally selling their ideas who had no physical product they, they would complain about the very thing I could solve. They would say, I've got this great service, but no one knows who I am. I've got this great service, but no one knows what we stand for. So I didn't have to convince them of the value of what we did, of, of what we do is, you know, we find a niche, come up with that contrarian point of view, do a bunch of experiments until they look like they're everywhere at once in that niche. So that's what I would say, consultants. But then what happened was certain technology companies would come to me and it was exactly these, if they had that mindset, I, I realized the tech company could be an idea-based company. So like Basecamp or Casper, they sell mattresses. 
So they can exist on a bunch of levels. One, they're a mattress company. Two, it's the te logistics technology that allows you to order mattresses online and have them delivered. But they haven't marketed either of those things. They've marketed themselves as the preeminent experts on sleep. Like they don't hold mattress conferences. They like sponsor sleep conferences. And they've, made, they've had a big hand in making sleep a fad. I know that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> but it used to be a thing where like, I sleep four hours a night. Well, I sleep three and a half hours a night. Now it's like sleep hygiene and everyone's bragging that they sleep eight to 10 hours a night in the business world. And, you know, um, it's funny. I actually know someone who helped produce an Ariana Huffington um, event. She, she does thrive and she wrote a book on, on how important it is to sleep. And the people running it said that they literally slept three hours a night for a month straight putting on this conference. About how important <laughs> <it is to laughs> sleep. Well, I have to say, if, if I was going to jump on a bandwagon, the sleep one's a pretty freaking good one to get I on. love sleeping. I yeah, love, it's love a, it. Yeah, it's, it's a good it's thing. It's a great one. Um, tell me about um, oxytocin. Yeah. Um, so it's funny. I, 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 oxytocin is what, what they call the, the cuddle chemical. I mean, it's a, it's a chemical that our bodies, um, our brains, it, it, I'm not sure if it comes from the brain, but probably, but it certainly affects our brains and it's excreted into our blood screen stream and it makes us feel close to, um, people that we love. So it, um, you know, oxytocin is, um, produced when mothers breastfeed oxytocin is produced when romantic couples cuddle when they have skin to skin contact and it, it's that deep love not like lust but that that connection you have and you get it with friends too close friends but what people don't know about oxytocin is that it's also the the chemical that makes us hate people that aren't like us it, it, you know and and don't tell me that you're not one of those people we all have that impulse it might be you know it doesn't have to be racial it can be there's always we can fight against it with our rational brains but human beings we all have negative feelings against certain tribes of people who aren't like us so um it, it's really interesting there was this anthropologist who um got very fascinated with uh, where did the human, the original human beings come from, you know, because there used to be multiple human species. And what he pretty definitively figured out as much as you can of anything you didn't witness yourself through the fossil record and through different things was that most of Homo sapiens was wiped out by a climate change event. And there was this one little group of people who retreated to a small coast of South Africa. And there was a coastal alcove and they found the remnants of this alcove where there was a bed of shellfish. So it was a very calorie dense area. You didn't have to forage or hunt for it. It was very easy to get. And the only thing keeping Homo sapiens from having as much of this food as they wanted was other human beings because it, there was competition. So what they're very, um, their hypothesis, you know, and, and it's a pretty um, data-backed hypothesis at this point, is that those human beings who were able to cooperate really well with their own tribe, while also, dis while also fighting with people not in their tribe, survived. And this little group of humans from that coast spread on every, to every continent on earth. And it's oxytocin that, that makes us do that. So anyone who thinks they aren't tribal in one way or another, it is on the molecular level. It is a really hard thing to fight. So are you saying those people in that out, in that little cove in, in South Africa, um, 
adapted genetically that yeah. trait of of sort of tribalism or anti-other? Anti-other and extreme cooperation with those like them. So if you think about what, what's what's so interesting about human beings, try to put a, I mean, chimpanzees are pretty smart, you know, and, and gorillas. They can even learn rudimentary language and that kind of thing. <clears throat> How, excuse me. But imagine putting a bunch of chimpanzees on an airplane and saying, listen, sit in your seats for two hours. We'll come by periodically and give you food and then file out in an orderly fashion when it's done. And they would rip holes in the side of the airplane, right? I mean, but human beings can do that. I mean, we... You know, we, we, we file in, we file out, we cooperate, we, we do recovery efforts, we create cities, we create, you know, I mean, we're, we're we, you know, let's give ourselves some credit. We talk about how awful we are, but we're pretty good at cooperating with people that we identify with. And oxytocin causes that. I mean, we, oxytocin is secreted when you think about your country. If you love your country, like in World War II, everyone loved their country. Or, or like, the, you know, the old Ray Bradbury stories where they would go to the band shell and people would play John Philip Sousa. That gave people a warm feeling inside. I mean, I get a warm feeling on 4th of July because I have good memories of the summer. At the same time, um, we see it in our own country now with Republicans and Democrats. These have become tribes, you know, they're, they're, they're families breaking off connections with each other. There are, you know... Um, people who won't date Republicans, won't date Democrats. I mean, these are political parties, you know, and that's 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 pretty intense. So, yeah, we do both at the same time. And yes, those character, the hypothesis is that those human beings who had that combination were much better adapted to this calorie dense area because they could kind of monopolize it. And so when people talk now about you know, missing hugging their friends or um, relating these experiences where they accidentally like brushed hands with somebody in a store by accident or, yeah. or, or when a delivery person handed them the bag and they actually accidentally touched flesh during the pandemic. There's, there's an oxytocin element to that going on. Like that that's the oxytocin's not, doesn't have an outlet or isn't manifesting or like. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a biologist and I, I don't know exactly, but from what I do know, I mean, we are, we are, um, we do need touch and we do need, you know, human relations. I mean, we're the most social animal on earth. Yeah. So, well, and your chimpanzee flight, clearly you haven't been on some of the Southwest flights I've been on, but, um, that's a topic for, yeah, <laughs> no, I, 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 you're right. I mean, I've done a lot of spirit <laughs> air. Although yeah, exactly. it's, 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 it's funny that you say that because, you know, um, so I just saw a clip of a woman who was on an airplane and she wouldn't wear a mask. And the flight attendant came over and said, ma'am, you have to wear a mask. And the, the woman conspicuously ignored her three times. And then the woman, the, the uh, flight attendant, I don't know. She called the flight attendant an a-hole. The flight attendant got a cop. The cop ex escorted her off. Someone yelled out. Okay, Karen, and everyone applauded. Now, I assure you that the woman who called her an a-hole was, was a Trump follower and was in that tribe. And I assure you the person who yelled out, hello, Karen, was an anti-Trump Democrat. You know? So I don't know. I mean, that was interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. About a mask. I mean, a thing that shouldn't be tribal at all. 
Right. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how the things that are that even self-preservation has become controversial. Right. But, but, you know, it's, yes, that's the moment we're in. I sometimes think the reason we're this is my own pet theory that the reason we're having so much internal division right now is because there's no Soviet union and there's no Nazi, you know, or, or Axis powers. I mean, if you think about it, when did this internal division re- rev up again? It was in the nineties, you know? Yeah, there's no Gollum. Yeah, it's. I mean, what was the only thing that brought the Earth together in that movie Independence Day, right? It was uh, the aliens. I mean, that's the only thing that's ever going to unite the nations of the Earth. And Will yeah. Smith, maybe. <laughs> and Will Smith. And yeah, Bill exactly. pa- uh, was the other guy, uh, <laughs> Bill Pullman. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell me about the concept of milk before meat. Yeah. So I love this concept. Actually, it's it's um actually it's a it's a concept that various religions, especially new religions, have used quite explicitly in these terms. They'll, they'll often say um, it's, it's in a certain, um, in the, um, it's the Pearl of Great Price, which is a piece of um, Mormon scripture. They said, you know, the, the children should be given their milk before their meat, which basically means, uh, and it's also um, preachers have said it, various groups. And what it basically means is you can't give little babies the heavy stuff, you got to introduce it with gentle milk and then ease into the meat. And so um, there's been a lot of research done about how human beings on a, on a brain level adjust to change. So if human beings are very neurologically bad at accepting big changes. And, and again, that has an evolutionary basis probably as well. I mean, if, if the forest goes from green to yellow and orange in one second, it's probably a fire. That's, you know, not a safe scenario, but if it goes very gradually, that's autumn, right? So um, we fear big changes. However, you can introduce the same change in small little droplets over a period of time, and we won't even notice it. Um, You know, magicians do this all the time. They'll often deflect you know, your attention and kind of move something very slowly, like across a table, especially what they call close magic, you know, it's um, like card tricks. And, and that's how they make it appear like it's jumping. So yeah, um, a, a lot of times, you know, we get used to religions, but new religions and cults, their their beliefs are invariably odd, because they're supernatural. And, and when they're new, they're hard to accept. So countless cults and new religions have used this tactic to gain a foothold and those that don't usually fail. And just to, just to dig in a little bit on the tactic, the idea is that if your religion is, you know, little green men from outer space, um, that's the meat, but the milk along the way is the way of living or the way like, can you just give a, a an illustrative yeah, I mean, you, example? you just gave a real example, weirdly enough. So Scientology, um, almost certainly, although they're not open about this at the highest level, the real religion is that there are extraterrestrial beings called Thetans that live on, who came from like the edge of, who lived on the edge of a volcano and like dispersed into the minds of every human being. And that's what causes negative thoughts. So 
that's a hard thing to accept. I, I'm going to give no basis on whether that's true or false. And in fact, other religions are just as weird. We're just more used to them. But that, that's, you know, you walk up to someone in the street and say, I've got a great new gospel for you. There were a- ancient aliens on the lip of a volcano who are infecting your brain. They're going to be like, get out of here before I call the police, right? However, Scientology is pretty popular and it's often very popular with rich and powerful people. So they never come in with that. They come in with, you know, Dianetics reads like a self-help book. It's about, and, and a lot of it makes sense. You, I mean, I've read parts of it. You read it and it's, you know, exercises for eliminating negative thoughts, exercises, you know, they say, if you don't understand a word in this book, look it up in the dictionary because it's important to define everything in your life and not have blinders on. I mean, stuff that makes sense, you know, then they have you monitor your emotions and everything looks very clinical. It doesn't really look like a church. You have these little machines that look kind of like what you would use. You know, we're such a data oriented society. So it speaks the language of modern American society. And then yeah. they, they introduce a little more and then they say, well, you know, maybe you need this special extra special machine, but now you're used to machines. So the kind of weird machine doesn't seem so unusual. And then, you know, and it goes on and on. And before you know it, you're believing in aliens on the lips of volcanoes. And it's just, they, it, this is so powerful. Like there are literally thresholds in the brain. There's this woman, Kathleen Taylor, who wrote a book called Brainwashing and it's an academic book. And she talks about how the human animal has a threshold below which they cannot detect change. So scientifically, you can take a massive change, break it up into minuscule parts, and you won't be able to detect the the various changes if each one is just a little smaller than the next. And this has pretty yeah. myriad implications, you know, for for influence and persuasion. Yeah, that's incredible. So you sort of bring us to the next question or the next concept I wanted to hear about from you, which is to me, when I read about them in your book, they seemed like they were opposing concepts, but you said they're both present um, in successful forms of hype, which is the magician as opposed to science, um, how they're both elements in successful hype. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Well, so, yeah, that's a great point because I, I define magician a little bit differently. You know, you, you got to think in our society, our science is magic. I mean, our magic is our science. So in other words, to the way I define, I say be a magician, that you have to be a magus, as I call it. Um, you know, what I mean by that is that the ancient, there were always, there was always a cast of people in ancient civilizations. The first that we know about were actually called the, the Magi. It was those people who visited, you know, Jesus on Christmas, but that was actually an ethnic group in ancient Persia. And their role in society were to like do like fortune telling and stuff. And they would come in like before a war and they would always have amulets and burn incense and say all kinds of like words and they wore robes and they were very austere. And sometimes their predictions would be wrong, but somehow it didn't matter, you know? And I don't know. I mean, look what just happened with the, now you can't do tea leaves in magic anymore unless you're in certain audiences, but we believe in statistics so much. I mean, Nate Silver and the pollsters have gotten it dead wrong for two elections in a row. You know, with the figures and the charts and the this and the that, they can't predict anything. And as far as I know, the, the next election's going to roll along and there's still going to be polls and people are still going to be checking 
Nate Silver's thing because it has the appearance of authority. So it's not about the magic. It doesn't mean go around being a magician, you know, in, in the traditional sense. What it means is coming up with a basis for your claims that aren't just spouting off opinions. So like a consultant does this all the time. It's funny. When I started my business, I was trying to think of, of what, um, I'll leave out names here, but I was trying to think of what form it should take. And I was thinking maybe I should start a consultancy. And I sat down with a friend of mine who was working at one of the big five or whatever it is now, big four consulting firms. And she charged, the, the firm charged $100,000 for an exploratory deck for a very major company about digital marketing. And the thing was like a hundred pages long. I knew my friend knew nothing about digital marketing. They researched it and there were charts and figures and diagrams and doodities and pie charts and statistical analysis. And I'm telling you this deck basically said do digital marketing for a hundred thousand dollars. But if they just said do digital marketing, <laughs> they would have paid nothing. I mean, you know, <laughs> so those yeah. are the magic spells. That's the abracadabra. That's the amulets. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's the magic and the science are intertwined because our magic is our, I mean, there, it's, it's, it's the, the appearance of science. I mean, sometimes real science is, isn't, isn't as flashy. So if you talk to a real scientist, there's a lot of nuance in what they do. I have a friend who, who's a scientist, a, a personal friend who works at Pfizer as a doing clinical trials, not on the vaccine. But we took a walk recently and she explains to me how these trials were actually done. And it's so fuzzy and muddy and non-authoritative because that's what real science is. It's observation and being willing to be wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. People don't like that. People like, you know, <laughs> Simon Sinek, you know, who I use an example. He's this other guru who does a lot of great stuff. But he made this, this video about why millennials are the worst people ever, you know, and he comes on there with his little spectacles. Now, this guy doesn't have any scientific background. He, he worked at an advertising agency and he's like, the, uh, you know, I forget what he said. So don't hold me to this, you know, but it was like, you know, parents uh, were helicopter parents. And as a result, the epinephrine and the da 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 in the brain, you know, caused them. Like he had this big pseudoscientific like explanation. And you're like, oh, it must be true. Let me share this video, right? So I'm not saying why. I don't think he lied. What I'm saying is people love signifiers of credibility. And in the ancient world, that was tea leaves and amulets and magical spells. In our worlds, it's statistics and pie charts and data and brain science. But whatever it is, you need, cred you need credibility signifiers. It's the same reason doctors used to always wear white coats. It's the same reason recording engineers used to wear white coats before, mm -hmm. before it became. Now I think they don't because you're supposed to be a rebel to be a music producer. But for many years, that wasn't the case. They were the technicians. So they wore white coats. Yeah. Well, I feel like that that's that is actually um, intertwined with the next point that you talk about, which is theater and drama, the role of theater and drama. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? So so this is really I thought you were going to say this was was what sounded. Um, you always surprise me because I thought this is what you were going to say sounded contradictory with the milk before meat, because with the milk before meat, I'm saying introduce concepts slowly. 
And with theater and drama, what I'm saying is never neglect the flash and panache. You know what I mean? I mean, it could be a rock concert. It could be Amway where they literally use staging and lights and colors, but it could also be, you know, okay. So I have these three comic books behind me on the wall. Everyone always brings that up. I happen to put them there by accident, but I'm keeping them up because it says creative, you know, that's staging. You see those and you're like, this isn't just a boring old marketing guy. This is a creative marketing guy. Right. <laughs> so, so making sure you, you worry about your staging is important. However, it's when your ideas or what you're trying to put across has a lot of competition, when there's a small margin between what you're doing and what other people are doing, drama becomes very, very important. So like Amway, literally what they actually sell is like hand soap and laundry detergent and like breath spray. And, and so there's not much of a difference between their stuff and Tide and Binaka. So they have to use all of this rallies and music and lights and sound to get their salespeople very worked up. But if you have a brand new idea, something that would be challenging for people to accept. So we talked about a new religion, but it could be, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Martin Luther King was civil rights. He, he always talked about, he wrapped his language in the flag. It was all from sea to shining sea battle hymn of the Republic because integration in our society was, was a, was a radical concept. So if something is, going to be hard for people to digest introduce it in stages if there's not much difference between your thing and another thing if you've got another singer songwriter with a guitar an acoustic guitar you might want to introduce some theater into the mix mm -hmm. there's a couple more things i want to talk to you about before we let um folks uh chime in with their own questions um and one is the fetishization of work um that 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 part of the book um I really felt like it was burying the lead to a certain extent, just because it's such a powerful, a powerful concept. And it's been so artfully used. Oh, um, because it was at the end. Cause I waited till the end. You mean? Yeah. It was yeah. such a, it was such a, um, it was such a powerful hit that late yeah. in the book. Um, yet you could see how that concept it's, it's, first of all, it's very timely and modern. Um, used in a lot of ways, but it's also, uh, it just seems to be sprinkled through so many of the other personalities and yeah. tactics that you've, yeah. that you, it's, that you talked about. Common. Yeah. So could you explain what that, what the fetishization of work is and how it's used, um, it, you know, in the context of the ideas you explore? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this really brings us full circle in a way because, um, I, I talked about that guy, very Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V, who I picked a fight with. And my criticism of him was why was he telling all of his young fans to work like dogs when obviously a lot of them were nowhere near as rich as he was, but he kept getting richer and richer. And, and, and I was wondering, you know, most people who try to become entrepreneurs don't sit there and say, you know, I'm going to be really lazy. Like, I don't really know that you have to work hard. Like most people who start their own business know that you have to work hard. So why did he in every speech constantly scream at people to hustle? So I thought there must have been some benefit for him in that. And it turns out cults do that all the time. So um, the Moonies, which is one of the biggest um, 
and, and you can say cults instead of a religion in this case, because they basically entice their, their followers to give away all their money and, and cut off ties with their family and live with them and whatever. They almost, or they invariably um, get their followers to work ridiculously long hours, in their case for free. Um, and so on one hand, why that's great for the cult is that they spread the word for the, for the company. It's like Tom Sawyer. Do, do you guys remember that from either your own reading or English class? Like he tells, he doesn't want to paint the fence white. So like he says to his, Oh, this is so much fun painting this fence, you know, oh, paint the fence. So then everyone starts painting the fence and he's like eating an apple. So if you get, if you make it out, like working on behalf of this great cause that we share is so wonderful they do the spreading of the word for you. So Gary Vaynerchuk was awesome, right? I mean, everyone's out there. They call themselves Vaniacs. They're constantly telling people, Gary Vayner, Gary V, Gary V, Gary V, because they're working hard, right? But there, there's something even more fundamental than that. And it's that there, there's this concept of cognitive dissonance that um, is talked about a lot lately with some of the stuff that's going on in the news. But it's this idea, and it's very real, that um, human beings do not do well with holding contradictory thought realities in their head at the same time. So they have to smooth them out. So like if you support a certain political candidate, for example, and that political candidate starts to do things that you normally would disagree with, you can either say I was wrong and I'm not very well informed or, or I'm a bad decision maker or say actually what he's doing isn't that bad after all. And that's what we usually do. Um, we double so down. That's more natural. That's the more natural thing to do. So if you work really hard on behalf of this cause or this idea or whatever that someone puts out there, and then you start to have doubts, like, I don't know if this is really so good. It's really tough to tell yourself, I just wasted six months of my life working like a dog for this thing. So you double down in your words, you know, you, you, you start to like the thing even more. It, it, it intensifies the bond. So we see this all the time. I mean, we see it with a lot of this hustle culture with entrepreneurs. We see it. Um, we, 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 I mean, keep an eye out for it. You'll see it all over the place. This this fetishization of, of work. I, I loved your example with uh, Gurdjieff, how he had the oh, followers yeah. come to his house and do all his yard work. <laughs> he literally, this guy, yeah, Gurdjieff, who, who is still, I mean, I don't think he's like, common i mean i didn't know who he was until the last couple of years but i think at one point he was extremely popular and I, i'll go to like new age bookstores and he's still looked at as this great figure he was this yeah, like for sure. new age thinker for sure for my two cents he was kind of a jerk this guy i mean you know he he basically would like bring these people these movie stars and things to his house and tell them to like purify themselves through hard work and you would come and see these like extremely rich people and movie stars who had paid all this money to go to the spiritual retreat, digging holes to nowhere. He, they would do his yard work. And then when he was done having them do that, he would, they would just like dig ditches. So yeah. Um, it's arguable whether that guy is the great spiritual leader that uh, so many people still think he is, but he's an awesome um, hype artist. That's for sure. Um, while you and I uh, start to wind down a little bit, I'm going to ask people um, to go into the participants area, raise your hand if you have any questions. Um, I'll call on some folks and then maybe I'll interject some of my last few questions. Um, Great. So it looks like Ant has his hand raised. And if you want to unmute yourself and ask your question. Great. Thank you, uh, Michael. This was a fascinating and fun talk. Thanks, Ant. Um, 
and I appreciate your Gary V sentiments. <laughs> right well, back. I've always found him uh, tough, to, tough to swallow. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of him to swallow. Uh, the um, question I have is the difference between idea companies and cults in your mind, like where that, uh, I guess both for the participants and leaders, in both those scenarios, like what are some of the feature differences that you've seen in your in your, your investigation? I mean, first of all, these are all words, right? I mean, I think the first thing is what's the difference of a cult and a religion? Some people would say a, a religion is is um, just a cult with an army, but I don't think so. Yeah, maybe, but but you know, cults, real cults, you know, dangerous, dangerous cults. They they there are people who. They give away all of their money. They live in communes. They don't aren't allowed to talk to their parents. They're physically abused, you know? So I don't know. An idea-based business, a lot of idea-based businesses do a lot of good. I mean, I wouldn't say they're, they're I mean, they're, they're like cults. Some of them rip people off and they don't have anything to sell. But I, I've had many consultants and I've hired many consultants and things like that, that that have helped us. So my point isn't that a cult and an idea-based business is one and the same at all. It's that the strategies, if you strip away the content, the stuff that they're teaching, the same strategies that get people excited about one can be the same that get people excited about others. And I would rather have an idea-based business use these strategies. So like, for example, when I was a kid, a teenager, I was flipping around back when you flipped around, you know, and there was a documentary about um, the Grateful Dead and there was like a televangelist. And the, the hippie fans of the Grateful Dead were like swaying around and like in ecstasy and moving around. And then I looked at the televangelists and the people in the audience were flopping around. So it couldn't have been more different of what they were selling, but the reaction was exactly the same. So I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> um, uh, Caitlin uh, reminded me to remind everybody that anybody whose question gets answered and would like a copy of Michael's book just needs to email me their address. And I will make sure to send them a copy of Michael's book through Amazon. So, Ant, make sure you send me your address, even though you did the other day, because I still, now I can't find it again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and before I call on the next person, I wanted, to, I wanted to know if I could give you the name of an organization, and if you could maybe give me an example of how they successfully do one of the things in your book. Uh-oh, I'm on the hot seat. Like, yeah, let's see <laughs> if we can do this. And by the way, pass is okay. okay. Um, Kanye West. Yeah, I mean, beyond the fact that that a lot of hip hop fans think he's a really good rapper, I mean, I, I think um, he, yeah, he makes news. You know what I mean? I mean, first of all, he's very contrarian. So that ridiculous thing he did with um, uh, Taylor Swift, I, I got a lot of attention. You know what I mean? Where he he co opted her moment. That's a, so. That's another tactic that I didn't we didn't talk about today. And it's the idea of making news instead of trying to get in the news. So like what a lot of people do in, in traditional PR is they work their network and they try to get in the press. And that's fine. I mean, that, that's a valuable tactic as well. But um, people like Kanye West, uh, if it's just not his mental illness, I'm not sure how, you know, it, it, how thought out his stuff is. But 
Um, but yeah, I mean, there was a group in the 60s called the Yippies, like Abby Hoffman, and, and he would constantly make the news. He went out and said, we're going to levitate the Pentagon. Now, he knew full well that they weren't going to levitate the Pentagon, but that became this big news story. But if you think about it, there was no news. He created an event that got covered everywhere. So I think Kanye West, if he's doing it consciously, falls under that umbrella. Gotcha. Um, Craig, could you unmute yourself and ask your question? Yeah. So speaking of levitating uh, government buildings and inventing <laughs> like events, I'm really interested. It looks like you cover Edward Bernay in your book. Yeah. Mm. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, what what Edward has done, you know, hype wise. And how can you connect like some of what he foundationally built uh, to modern hype people? Yeah, he, he is the most fascinating. He, he's arguably the most fascinating character that I've come across in this research. And, and it's funny, I know that he was covered in that documentary, that Adam Curtis documentary that came out. I, I didn't know about that when I started researching him. So um, his name's gotten out there more. But I think Time Magazine once called this guy the most important 20th century American that no one knows about. So he was... Um, known as the father of public relations because he invented the term public relations. Uh, he was Sigmund Freud's nephew and he decided to use psychological tactics to make a whole lot of money. And he originally called public relations propaganda. That was his original term for it. But then after World War I, that term fell into disuse. So he came up with prop public relations, which is interesting. So this guy, and, and I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, but this guy makes me second guess myself because he is single-handedly responsible for it being acceptable for women to smoke. It used to be considered a taboo before him. He had a government overthrown in South in Central America for the United Fruit Company. Um, you know, so, and, and the thing that I find the most fascinating is the story of how he got Americans to eat bacon for breakfast. So even though bacon and eggs is the quintessential American breakfast, before the 20s, that was not common in the United States. And he had Beechnut as a client, which at the time was one of the uh, biggest pork producers in the U.S. And they wanted to up, you know, bacon consumption. So he um, was connected to all of these prominent figures. He would nurture these connections underneath the surface. And um, he called on this doctor, probably paid him off. I don't know but called on this doctor to commission a study, quote unquote, that said that bacon was the perfect breakfast food because it replaces the energy that you lose during sleep from a health perspective. So this doctor sent this study to 5,000 physicians across the country. So before the year was out, every doctor in America was recommending bacon to their patients and bacon consumption went through the roof. So besides that being an awesome story, I don't think the moral is to lie to people. I think the moral to this story, and actually Andrew Lou Goldham, our, our, the man who connected us, was actually did this when he was building up the stones. You know, he says he turns drinks into print or something like that. The idea is that what hype artists do is they make it seem like the following is built completely grassroots. Like, you know, all of these Rolling Stones fans, you know, speaking, Andrew Lou Goldham was their manager, came because of this groundswell of attention and word of mouth. But in truth, he knew the top club promoters. He knew the top journalists. 
So what the best type artists do is they're constantly building almost this secret society of prominent people under the surface that can pull strings for them. And I think what people often say to themselves is, well, I can't do that. I don't know anybody, but it's surprisingly simple, not easy, but surprisingly doable, especially with social media. So like, for example, um, I do this all the time. How did I meet Andrew Lou Goldham, the, the manager of the Rolling Stones who produced their first four records, who's a legend? How did little old me meet this guy? Well, I was on Twitter. I had read his book. I'm an admirer. I monitored him until I saw something cool. And then I quoted him, that quote he has about everyone is a BS artist or whatever. And because he has an ego, like everybody else does, and I don't say that negatively, he shared my tweet. So I, I, then I gave him something that was cheap for me to give, but valuable to him. I write a column, you know, I, at the time I wrote for Forbes and I said, or Inc. And I said, hey, can I interview you for Inc? And he said, yes. And before long we were having breakfast together and he introduced me to you and that's why I'm here. And that's doable for everyone. You can monitor Twitter, Instagram, whatever you use, and wait until there's a human connection. Stop worrying about the business stuff. What if, if you guys have a sports team in common, a band in common, you lived in the same small hometown, connect with someone around that. And you'll be surprised. Even really powerful people will talk to you about that stuff before they'll talk to you about business stuff. Because everyone is a human being. So yeah, I think Edward Bernays, beyond just being fascinating, was really good at that. Before I call on the next person, um, I want to throw another organization at you, uh, the Catholic Church. So, gosh, the Catholic <laughs> Church, I mean, they, they've been around for a while. Let me think back to their start. Well, yeah, actually, I got it. All right. So now they're just I, I think that they're, they're not doing it hype very well. Uh, now, there's a lot of momentum that keeps them alive. But, you know, many of the things we think of as Catholic weren't Christian because Christianity, when it started out, was very much a branch of Judaism in the early years. So, you know, we think of um, St. Paul as kind of being this apostle and who grew the religion. But um, I've done a little research on him. There were about 100 Christians when he became a Christian. He didn't know Jesus, but most of the people who were Christians at that time, they called it the way, were were. Um, did know Jesus or knew people who knew him. And, and um, it was very much a Jewish religion. It, it, uh, the, 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 you know, they um, were kosher, they had beards, they circumcised their sons, you know, I mean, and they just happened to believe in, in um, the teachings of, of this Messiah. Um, so St. Paul was a Roman citizen and he used the milk before meat strategy. He was the person most responsible, A, for spreading Christianity, but making it what we now think of as Catholicism. So um, he, he was from a town called Tarsus where uh, they had this ritual where you would drink um, symbolic blood, you know, for salvation. Um, he took that. Uh, he took a lot of Roman and pagan rituals because, he, you know, he told people you don't have to circumcise your son. That's a little heavy when you're a Roman that, you know, hasn't really done that before. So he basically used Roman religious practices as the wrapping paper for Christianity, milk before meat. He introduced it slowly. And most of the things we think of as Catholic are actually pagan. You know, the incense, the, the, the chanting, all of that. Those are not Jewish things. Those are, are pagan things. Even the word priest, I mean, sacerdote, in Spanish, it's sacerdote. That's a Latin word for like priest, like pagan priest. So uh, yeah, that's how they did it. All right. Thank you. Um, Steven, uh, can you unmute yourself? Yes. Hey, 
Um, so I was wondering, you know, you, you touched on it earlier, but in the startup space, you know, there's definitely this notion that, you know, you must be crushing it 100% of the time. And, uh, you know, if for some reason, one day you only crush it like 90% of the time, some, something's wrong or, you know, so, something must be seriously off. So I was just kind of wondering how you see this startup culture evolving or, or changing. And if, you know, you see these like public implosions of these unicorn companies like WeWork or Theranos, and if you see that maybe kind of leading or being a catalyst for like more positive change and more like focus on wellness and, and, and well-being. That's a great question, given that you sort of get into WeWork in the book. Yeah, um, I don't. Um, something I've realized about myself is I'm really bad at predicting things. Um, I, I've like tried to predict. I thought Bernie Sanders, it was going to be like Bernie Sanders was going to be the nominee. I got that wrong. I, I, I'm very bad at predicting things. So I don't really know what the, 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 the um, trend will be. However, I do know that if you, so so in that same chapter about fetishizing work, I talk about something called effortless doing. Because so if, if I decided tomorrow to perfectly implement all of these hype strategies, I could rule the world. I could be a gazillionaire. I could conquer anything. So why don't I do that? Because my emotions get in the way. Because I'm a human being. So, you know, yeah, I could... Um, find a void and fill it. But sometimes, you know, I don't know, you know, it doesn't quite feel right or not, not that it's immoral. It's just that it's the same reason that if you're single and you want to walk up to a woman in a bar, you don't do it usually a hundred percent of the time. Emotions get in the way, you know, you feel nerves, you feel whatever. And I think that um, when you are working 70 hours a day without doing anything to calm your nervous system down, you make really poor decisions and you're not able to uh, influence people very well either. And so when they studied sociopaths and um, psychopaths, the people who are on balance better at um, manipulation, what they found is that their heart rates don't go up in emotional situations. So they're able to like look at the world as a chessboard. And I actually have a theory that that's why hype is more is usually implemented by those kinds of bad actors not because the the practice is bad but because those kind of people who are very calm inside are very good at doing what needs to be done so i I would say to businesses that whatever you're doing because it does take a lot of work to start something new there's no getting around that but you need to build some time in for um especially your marketing and sales people to do the kind of activities that that settle their nervous systems down whether that's exercise, meditation, martial arts, whatever, because otherwise you make awful reactive decisions. Uh, Before we go to the the next question, I just want to encourage other folks, please raise your hand if you have any questions, especially if you're a non-lighter. We'd love to hear from some of um, of our guests from outside of our virtual four walls. Um, One other organization for you before the next question. What about Tupperware? Oh, that would have been that. That seems to me to be the uh, fetishizing the work thing, the Tom Sawyer method, right? I mean, they basically, hey, how would you like to start your own business? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's basically do do this thing for yourself, sell my product for me, and get a small commission. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I like that. Uh, Justin, want to uh, want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Yeah, you've. Uh... 
by the way, fascinating conversation. Thank um, you. you. You've brought up hip hop quite a bit and getting hype from hip hop. It made me think of um, the correlation between hype and shock. Right. And I keep thinking about um, this documentary I just watched uh, regarding Takashi 69 and how he oh, got yeah. his, um, how he became who he is today versus what he was. Um, so when does hype stop being hype and become like pure shock value? Like there's, there's no benefit, but just to get attention from shock value. So it, I, it's funny that you say that. I, I, I've thought about this question, not as shock, but as what I call being a trickster. So there, there's this character in mythology where there's this trickster character like Loki in the Avengers who kind of adds color to life by being mischievous, right? And uh, we see that character a lot in, in that world. So I don't know, Takashi 69, but, but I'll, I don't know, um, Banksy, you know, just various people. However, I think what the people who have sustainable, sustaining careers do, who aren't just shock value people do, is they know when to switch. They know when to move into their new incarnation. So I think where being a trickster or being a shock artist is really valuable is where is when you're not noticed is when you don't have any leverage. Right. So like when, when um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example. So there's a guy named Ryan holiday who I'm very familiar with, who is now known as like this um, really a serious guy. He's relatively young for being as successful as he is. He's like, you know, in his early thirties, but at 21, he was the uh, head of marketing for American apparel and he would do things for American Apparel, like he hired uh, Sasha Gray, who, who you know is a porn star, to pose naked except for socks for a clothing company. You know, so that's very funny, right? But you know, got a lot of press. He, um, you know, he was Tucker Max's uh, PR, not PR guy, like pr- promote hype guy. Really, he um, got a billboard. You know, Tucker Max was that guy who wrote about drinking and hooking up with with girls and was considered pretty misogynistic and he got a billboard for the movie the tucker max movie in the middle of the night spray painted like sexist pig on it then called in with a fake name to a feminist publication and before long feminists everywhere were vandalizing the 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 billboards which is exactly what he wanted because it got all kinds of press and the movie did great but you know at a certain point he didn't want to be that guy for his whole life he he um was really interested in like very heady guy, Greek and Roman philosophy, wanted to be a very serious writer, you know? So he wrote this book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, where he exposed, quote unquote, his awful practices, his trickster practices. But that did two things. It showed how smart he was. It was a cool read, but it also allowed him to make the transition into his new persona. Then he wrote a book called, um, I, I guess the first one was, yeah, The Obstacle is the Way. It was like repackaged stoicism. And it's like, the most popular book in the NFL. And so now he's not a trickster or shock guy at all. So I think the trick is knowing what your goals are and how can you use it as a tool to get attention. But when is it time to shift? Otherwise you become Dennis Rodman, right? I mean, that guy, the yellow, the green hair and all that helped him get famous. Madonna told him to do that, but now he's just a clown and an idiot and everyone sees him that way. I don't know if he really is, but that's how people see him because he never made the shift. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like a follow-up to that would be when I think about um, people like Madonna 
or Lady Gaga or Miley Cyrus um, who intentionally change their brand on a right. basis to evolve. Especially Lady Gaga. You know, Miley Cyrus constantly comes back to the she can't quit the tongue out shock thing, you know. But Lady Gaga was so smart. She did the she's so shrewd. She did the meat dress and all that stuff. And the minute it no longer served her, she's strumming guitar on stage with Bradley Cooper getting rave reviews as like the Barbara Streisand character, right? I mean, she's she's no one is shrewder than her in entertainment right now. Before the next question, I'll throw another uh, institution at you uh, to see what uh, how they use hype. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know. I think they just help people. I'm not sure if they're. I'm not, I'm not, I don't really know enough about it, but I know that people. Um, I think that might just be um, good old fashioned word of mouth. But I don't know the story well enough to to know if I'm honest. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, Jeanette, want to? Uh, Unmute yourself and ask your question. Yeah, of course. Um, thanks for taking the time to be here with all of us. Oh, this it's is my pleasure. And Thank you. Um, my question is like your thoughts on Beyonce and Jay-Z like as an entity within themselves. Because I feel like um, as a hip hop head, it's like they both started off as like a lot of hype behind them. But they both pivoted into these huge like multi-dimensional I don't want to say characters, but controllers of different markets that no one ever thought they would be a part of. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, and I don't know the ins and outs of, of all the things they're involved with. I mean, I would say on one hand, it's worth noting that they are two of the most talented people in their respective fields of the world today. I mean, there are a lot of stars out there who are perfectly fine, but they use a lot of auto-tune and whatever. I mean, she is like at a James level talented and he's I mean I saw this video where he was um coming up with 99 problems like Rick Rubin was producing it and Rick Rubin like called the Beastie Boys in he's like you gotta see this guy he's like coming up with this song on the spot you know what I mean so and that's the first thing but I would say um if it, without knowing all the ins and outs um I, I would say that uh I, I would also say that not everything is hype like I would say, apparently Jay-Z really likes that book, The 48 Laws of Power. And I would say that he's probably as good at, it. there's hype, which is getting a lot of attention, but he's also good at, at cementing power, you know? Like he, 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 he always makes sure to own his rights. He always makes sure to own the business. He, so that goes beyond hype. You know, I don't think everything is hype, but I would say that if there's anything, it's that, there's this concept of presenting yourself. Another aspect of being the magician is that you're flawless. Like you can't, like you are a giant, you dial up your strengths and dial down your weaknesses. And I think they do that really well. I mean, the way Beyonce, I, I feel like people speak about her as if she's like a Greek goddess, like not like a human being. It's like this woman can do no wrong. And I, I wonder, there's no person like that. So I wonder where that, how, how, how conscious it was to create that image. So the transformation is incredible as well, because you think back 15 years ago and destiny's child was really yeah. thought of as being sort of a tool of the father. Yeah. That you're sort right. Of Matthew Knowles was the brain trust and it yeah. was all in. Um, and it's just clear that he's got very talented children. <laughs> I, I, no, it's a great point. I mean, I, you know, like everything else, I mean, there are so many factors. I read that he used to, 
you know, have them run and sing at the same time so that they didn't lose breath when they were dancing. But yeah, I mean, um, she grew up, I, I, I guess, I, I guess some of it seeped through, but yeah, she, they were like, I mean, they were a great group, but they were also looked at as sort of like a pop bubblegum group. And she's looked at as like a Diana Ross character or like Etta James. So I don't know. I don't know. That's probably above my pay grade on that one, but yeah. You know, there was a piece about Jay-Z. I think it was within the last year, although my concept of time, like everybody else, is yeah. pretty fucked up at this point. But there was a piece about, to, to the contrarian point of view, that Jay-Z's business deals are never with the brand. It's always with the brand that's slightly distressed or left of center because he can get more from them. So he didn't do a deal with wow, Apple. He did a deal with Samsung. Huh. He didn't do a deal with Spotify. He did a deal with Tidal. And he can always get more out of them. He can get a piece of the company. He can get a bigger check because he finds these brands that are a little bit more desperate or a little more hungry. Yeah. I mean, that again, makes me think, you know, he's just a tremendous power broker and business person. And there's, a, and there's more to business than marketing. Yeah. Well, uh, as we head into the home stretch and before we see if anybody else wants to raise their hand, I, I had a question for you, uh, sort of about process, I guess. Okay. Um, you know, do you have on the continuum of a sort of professional life, do you have a creative life separate from your profession or is, you know, or do you, like, how do you, how do you integrate and how do you think about what it is that you do? Yeah, very, very much so. Um, I, so first of all, I should say, I never wanted to own a business. That was the last thing I ever wanted to do. And um, I, you know, love my business, but I don't think I, some people love the game of business. Like they could sell sheet metal and they'd be happy. I, I'm not that that guy. To me, it has to be, you know, media and communication and that sort of thing, or else I'm not interested. Because I think of myself as, as a writer at heart. But as I said before, I, I love art that that um, intermingles the benevolent mischief and the and the art itself. So I feel like the creative work I do and the agency work I do and the writing work I do for nonfiction like this all informs each other. But yeah, I um I still write fiction. I get up in the morning and, and I, 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 I write fiction. I, 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 um, I have an idea that's sort of this brain I don't know, a magnum opus of mine that's this sort of immersive theater kind of real life video game that I've thought of for years that has musical components. That's like my spruce goose, but hopefully it'll actually fly at one point. Um, so I'm always playing with these ideas, but I, I think of it all as part of the same bundle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what's your, what's your take on, on the publishing industry? Like what's your experience been like? What's, what's that all about? I mean, I have an editor um, named Danya Dickerson who's been so great. I mean, she acquired the book and she's supported it um, the entire way through and she made the book better. I mean, I didn't know what it would be like having an editor and if I would just disagree. And um, she really did a good job of splitting the difference between kind of not making me feel like a jerk and my writer's ego and and making good suggestions. Um, and... Um, you know, I still believe that, uh, in depending on, with some exceptions, there's still value in having a book published with a major publisher because one, you get professionals to make the book better. You do get distribution, um, which still matters. 
And credibility is no small thing. I mean, that's a hype concept too. You know, we, we use heuristics, you know, shortcuts to make decisions, mental shortcuts. And when someone hears that your book is with a real publisher, um, it that's can right. get you through doors that, that you wouldn't get through with a self-published book. So yeah, it's, it's been a good experience for me. Yeah. Well, it's been a great experience for me having you join us today. Um, Thank you so much, man. I love talking to you. I'm glad we got to do it twice. Yeah, me too. It's been fun. <laughs> this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, as they say. I love it. <laughs> if everybody wants to unmute and uh, give uh, Michael Shine a round of applause, I think he, he would appreciate that. Um, and you can congratulate him on his book, which will be out January 12th, the same day this podcast episode will drop. Thank you, Mike Shine, and all of the attendees who stopped by for our live podcast taping. Thanks to Ant Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you want to learn more about Light, visit light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot com. Thank you, Caitlin Flood and Crystal Jackson for production assistance. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Spread the word. We're available from Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and most anywhere else podcasts can be had. And please keep your feedback coming. Email me at lp at light.com. Thank you so much. Be safe. Happy New Year and stay in touch. Mm-hmm.